You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Earlier this year, changes to several classic books sparked up the age-old debate about censorship, free speech, and cancel culture. You probably remember this. It was hard to miss. They're well known for their edgy, dark humor, but some of the uh, edge of those stories has been softened in these revised versions of the text. Indeed, Christie's books are getting the same treatment as works of fiction by celebrated writers uh, like the James Bond author Ian Fleming and also Roald Dahl. I could literally play hours of polarized debate on this topic for you, but I'll let you make up your own mind. After all, it's your call, right? If you own the old versions of these books and you don't want the new language, just keep the ones you have, right? And if you want the new ones, go buy them. These changes are most likely about money anyway. Except there is a catch. A catch that highlights exactly what kind of media you do and don't own. You see, if you happen to have ebooks of these works by Dahl, Christie, or Fleming, you might want to go take a look at them. You might very well find that the language in those books has already been changed for you. Whether you wanted the old version or the new one, doesn't matter, it's done now. By now, I'm sure that you're used to not really owning the music that you stream on Spotify or the movies that you watch on Netflix. You understand that you pay a monthly fee and those things can go away anytime and that's part of the deal. But what about digital media like ebooks that you bought? And I'm using that word in air quotes, but in order to get it, you probably clicked on a button that said buy or purchase. What about that media? When you buy digital media, what exactly do you end up owning? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Reggie Ugu is a pop culture reporter for The New York Times who recently wrote about the changes we've been seeing uh, in some classic books. Hey, Reggie. Hello. Why don't we start there with the actual texts of the books themselves? We're going to talk about different kinds of books. Um, But first, you know, what have we been seeing over the past few months in terms of um, authors— and their works being altered. Yeah. So, I mean, this all kind of started in the UK with Roald Dahl. The Telegraph newspaper noticed that some new editions of Roald Dahl's classics. So, you know, like Matilda, James and the Giant Peach, The Witches, etc. had been changed and, and were not the same as previous editions. And Some of those changes were done for, it turns out, sensitivity reasons, where they were changing things like describing characters as fat or removing certain references that were might be considered culturally insensitive, which is, you know, a thing that has been done throughout the history of publishing, even in Roald Dahl's lifetime. There were some changes around some racist language in early editions of his books, for example. But uh, these revisions that in these most recent editions of his books seem to be more extensive than usual, and they were done through this process known as sensitivity reading. So they published a a piece kind of identifying all these changes that had been made, and that got a lot of people talking. 
Can you just give me a couple of examples of them so we get a sense of what we're talking about? And and not, maybe not just in Roald Dahl, but uh, I know there are some other authors who've had their work changed as well. With Roald Dahl specifically, there's a lot of things about body image, kind of a recurring theme, I guess, for him, where his villains were kind of large and fat and described in a way that would made them sound grotesque. And and uh, some of these sensitivity readers, which are like consultants that publishers will hire to look at a text to see if there's anything that, you know, might be upsetting for readers and especially young readers, they were trying to, you know, be a little bit more sensitive, be a little bit more inclusive with the language. So what happened was after this world all thing, people and again, it was a UK press, though so the Telegraph and the Times of London are the main papers who were doing this. They started looking around to see, well, if this is happening in Roald Dahl, is it happening, is it happening elsewhere? And they found it had happened with uh, Agatha Christie and some of her mysteries. A lot of recent editions of her books were, it's more like racial and ethnic slurs that were being removed. And then they did a similar thing with R.L. Stein and his Goosebumps series, where they were... Again, some languages about size and body weight. And then there's one reference that I remember about girls having uh, crushes on a headmaster. And maybe someone thought that that was a little inappropriate. But one recurring thing here is, you know, aside from Roald Dahl, where there were new books that were released, these other revisions had been done years before and were only discovered after the fact. And that's part of the issue here is, in the publishing industry, there's not a practice of like documenting or reporting changes to texts. And so these kind of things happen and no one necessarily notices. It takes a journalist or someone with a platform to dig around and say, hey, this, this, this is happening and to kind of get people to notice and draw attention to it. In these situations, or maybe in just uh, general situations in the industry, who makes the call uh, to okay these changes? You know, is it uh, the author themselves? Is it the publisher? Uh, is it the estate, I guess, in the case of deceased authors? Like, I'm just trying to understand what kind of approval and, and control goes into it. Yeah, so it's the copyright owner. And that's different in different cases. But uh, oftentimes, yes, it'll be the estate with these sort of deceased authors who are being revisited the author themselves, obviously, if they're if they're alive, or the publisher who might own the copyright or who might control the who might control the the, the copyright or the distribution of, of the text. It's the person who has creative control over the work who is initiating this. It's not like a platform, you know, like Amazon or someone else who's coming in and saying, you know, you need to you need to make these changes. In a moment, we're gonna talk about what this says about who owns what when it comes to uh purchasing books or music or even movies, I guess. But first, because you are a pop culture reporter, can you just explain a little to us about the politics and the culture war issues that sprung up around the time that we found out about the doll changes? And then, yeah, to your point, found out about other changes that had been made years before. Yeah. So I think on the right, we've seen a lot of concern about so-called cancel culture that we're all familiar with at this point. Um, and, and you have these sort of flare-ups where people think that these efforts to be more inclusive have gone too far. And, you know, there, there's lots of hand-wringing about poli political correctness and, and policing language and, 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 and that kind of thing. 
I think a lot of these complaints historically have been overblown. I mean, we were just talking about who makes these changes, right? I can remember there was a news for weeks in conservative media and on Fox News about Dr. Seuss and some changes where an early version of one of his books that had some racist imagery was going to be discontinued, actually, not even pulled from shelves. They weren't going to publish it anymore. And that was turned into this whole thing of like, the police are coming to take things away from you and they've decided that these things aren't okay anymore. Actually, you know, these are just the publisher, the family, the estate had decided, you know, this is not how we want to represent ourselves. This is not something that we want to be out there. And so it's not a matter of someone coming in and telling you what you can and can't read. And also, you know, just with the Seuss case, these are, there were various sort of minor text. You know, the the books that were discontinued were his least read, least popular books. So it was not like a great cultural loss in the grand scheme of things. I think with these most recent examples, it's a little different because there are a few things going on. One is the the sensitivity reads. Reasonable people can disagree about the ne- the necessity of that kind of thing. But then just the fact of the changes being much more extensive and, and and affecting much more popular books like you know Matilda is is popular now if not more popular than it's ever been that you know I think got a lot of attention because it feels a little bit more real than some of the some of the complaints that we've heard in the past a and then b the method of the revisions being kind of quiet or um, obscured from the public just kind of smells funny to a lot of people, I think, and and raises a lot of questions about some common practices in the industry. And this is where I find it gets pretty interesting, because you mentioned, yes, they're not, you know, pulling the books off the shelves. They're not coming to your house to take your copies of these Dr. Seuss books. And at the same time, they're not announcing that these changes are being made. Now, I have, uh, my daughter has, uh, a road doll set, and in it is Matilda. And I think we got it about six months ago, so probably just before the changes. And so we've got the old one. We can buy a new one if we want. Uh, the same is true for my mother-in-law and her Agatha Christie mysteries. But what about people who have purchased uh, electronic versions, ebook versions on a Kindle or or a Kobo uh, of these books? Yeah, and, and, and I wrote recently about this, but what happens sometimes with the ebooks is the revisions just happen automatically and they kind of happen in the background. So if you're using a Kindle, there's a default setting called automatic book updates where the publisher, again, who controls this, can send an update to Amazon and that will be pushed out to everyone who owns that book automatically and quietly in the background. Kind of like when you get a software update on your on your iPhone and it just kind of happens in the background. You don't have to think about it. That's happening with with ebooks a lot of the time. And so with Roll Doll, there were some ebook owners who noticed that, you know, they their version had been updated to the new version and some of these changes had been made and they were completely unaware of it. So this practice of the publishers not announcing their revisions, not identifying them, not recording them, extends to ebooks. But it's even more invasive because it's not that 
oh, the next edition is in the bookstore. And if you buy the next edition, it's not the same as the old edition. No, it's the edition that you already bought that's on your device that has now been updated. Now, this doesn't happen every time there's a revision or a new edition. You know, obviously, publishers like to make new editions. It's a way for them to, to make more money and to sell more books. So there are some occasions where uh, they might decide to issue, you know, a new ISBN number and a new edition, and it wouldn't affect the one that you have on your on your device. But in some cases, they do simply update your file on your device. Amazon actually gives you the option, as I mentioned in your settings, you can turn this off so that if these updates come, you don't have to get them unless you unless you turn it back on. But other platforms don't necessarily even give you that option. Google Play, for instance, if you're using an Android device and you use Google Play to get your eBooks, they just automatically push out the updates. It's not clear how Apple and and Apple Books operates. They didn't get back to me when I reached out to them for my story, but there's not a setting, for for example. Uh, So if they are taking updates from publishers, then it's reasonable to believe that those are just being automatically pushed out to people without their knowledge. How often would something like that happen and why? If there's a function for it, it can't exclusively be the domain of like the occasional sensitivity update, right? Most of the publishers I reached out to didn't get back to me. They don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about their ebook policies. I think it's more comfortable for them to kind of operate, you know, without answering to (laughs) annoying people like me. But uh, I did speak to a vice president at, at Hachette. Um, which uh, publishes Little Brown and Grand Central Publishing and a bunch of other big imprints. And he described this process, you know, which is kind of just generally known as corrections. But it's not what you might think. It's not simply factual errors that are made uh, that are being corrected. It can really be anything, and it's up to the author and editor's discretion. You know, they could decide that they want to rephrase something, which a lot of the sensitivity reads led to re- rephrasing of things. They can decide that they want to add a new passage. You know, if it's like a cookbook or something and the recipe is wrong or something that is recommended is not available or outdated, they can go in and change that. And then there are things like, you know, um, if it's a nonfiction book and there's new developments in a story, you know, there might be a new appendix or something that they can add, you know, and maybe they decide they're not going to do a full new edition, but they're just going to add a little extra material that can happen. And then most commonly, of course, what people might notice if you're a big ebook reader is the cover, right? Like this, another example of these kinds of automatic updates is your cover of your book will change. And and that happens pretty regularly, especially now where so many television shows and movies are um, being adapted from popular fiction. So you might see that the cover of your ebook has been changed to match a new TV or movie adaptation. Well, that just happened automatically without you knowing. And in the exact same manner, the text of these books can be updated as well. Okay, but I bought this book. You know, I paid $9.99, $14.99, whatever it is for it. They can just change it without my consent. How does that work? Yeah, well, that that's maybe the, the craziest thing to me that I, that I found in my reporting, which is you say you bought it, but 
if you read the Amazon Kindle's terms of use, they say that it was not sold to you, but it was licensed to you. Meaning that the people who control the copyright, who own the copyright, still have certain rights over that book that you quote unquote bought. And there's there's a lot of issues here. And particularly with Amazon, they use the language of purchase. It's the same kind of buy now button that you use to buy detergent or whatever on the on the website. It's the same one for your Kindle books. But then you go into the terms of service and they and they have this other contradictory language. This is this is a real issue over and it affects not only ebooks but all kinds of uh, artistic material that you might buy, but especially digital content. Apple, Google, they are quote unquote licensing these things to you, and that means that there are certain rights that you might think that you have as the owner that you don't really have. I understand the idea of licensing things. I think everybody understands by now, you know, in the streaming era that. When you pay for a service that encompasses a wide range uh, of entertainment, like um, Spotify or whatever, that you're not actually buying it, right? That you're kind of renting access to it. And everybody understood when uh, Kanye back in the day changed his album five times or when Beyonce and Lizzo changed uh, lyrics in their songs, I think it was last year, that, you know, they're putting it out again. It's there and, and you were never really owning it. I guess my question is, what rights do people have as consumers to be informed about whether or not they own something? And when you ask these companies about it, you know, what do they say about the fact that most reasonable people would assume that when you pay $9.99 for a specific thing and you hit a button that says buy, that you own it? Right. Well, I mean, the short answer is they, the companies, they don't say much, right? <laughs> but what they will say is, well, you know, look at the terms of service. You know, you got to read the fine print. And if you read the fine print, you will find that they reserve the right to not only change the content that you, that you buy from them, but to take it away from you. That was my next question. Can they just do that if they decide we don't want to carry this World Doll book anymore? So everybody who's got it in their Kindle library, sorry, it's gone? Short answer is yes. I mean, I think the platforms themselves probably wouldn't do that because of the the uproar that that that, that would follow. But what does happen often is the ownership rights or the distribution agreement changes, and so then they lose the legal ability to carry that material. And you, it didn't have anything to do with you. It's not your fault that they lost the distribution deal that allowed them to carry your favorite television show, but they no longer are allowed to carry it. And so what happens is they just go in and they take it out of your of your library and 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 then it's gone. Is there any way for consumers to prevent this? And I say that knowing that, you know, um, back when people would purchase things from the iTunes store or buy, you know, digital movies or music, you could still, you know, take a hard copy from that, uh, put it on your computer somewhere, put it on put it on a hard drive removed from that computer and that piece of media would exist in digital form. Is there any way to do that with these new platforms like Kindle or other ones that are kind of closed, I guess? Yes, there is. And it's and it's it's really interesting, right? Because this 
transition to the sort of streaming era kind of happened gradually and then all at once, right? I mean, I think we, you know, if you're an adult today, you remember physical media being much more prominent. And then all of a sudden you have Spotify and then Netflix. I remember converting all my physical media to digital. And now I'm asking you how to do it the other way so I don't lose it. (laughs) Exactly. It's kind of this sort of full circle moment. Um, But part of what happened in that gradual shift is in the process of gaining the benefits of digital content, you know, freeing up space, not having to carry around all this stuff and keep track of it, um, being able to access it on multiple devices in multiple uh, scenarios. We kind of forget that, you know, there's something being lost. And, And there was this interim period where you had the benefits of digital. Maybe you got the files Um, one way or another, and you would download them, yeah, to a hard drive or wherever. But we don't really do that so much anymore, right? Like the streaming platforms, the digital platforms, the set-top boxes, the Kindles and so forth have gotten so good and so seamless that most people don't bother to deal with files, you know? Like you don't really think about (laughs) the extension of a file so much as you did maybe 10 years ago. That means that your content is being mediated and it's being mediated by companies who are beholden to by certain laws and certain agreements. And usually it's fine, but sometimes, you know, it, maybe it cuts against you. And so I think what people just have to do, if you're concerned that you might lose something or you're concerned about meddling is you kind of have to redevelop those muscles and, and, and get a hold of your files again. And there are different um, platforms that enable you to do this, different kinds of e-readers that are not Amazons or that can like convert your files for you so that you can download them and store them on your on your own devices. Because if you have the actual file on your device or on your, your hard drive, you know, they're not going to be able to get to it there. But if it's just sitting in your Amazon library, if it's just sitting in your Apple TV library, or your Google Play library, then yeah, those companies have some kind of control over it. You don't own it in the same sense that you might have in the physical era. Last question. Is it something that's still to be decided in terms of how we approach this from a consumer standpoint? Or is your sense, as somebody who covers these issues, just that, you know, the horse is out of the barn and people aren't willing to go back and people have kind of accepted this new standard of not really owning their media. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think we're going back to the era of physical media being dominant anytime soon. You know, I think physical media obviously is still around and will be around for a long time to come. But I think, you know, people like the ease and accessibility of digital tools. I think the thing about it is being conscious of these changes as they're happening. Mm -hmm. There's a sense with some of these platforms that you're not really losing anything. Like it's you same, you still have the same music. You still have the same movies. It's just over here now. It's just accessed in a different way, but it is different. There is something that is being lost, you know, and I think it's just being conscious of as we move to digital, as you no longer 
or owning your files and, 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 and controlling your files as you're no longer owning your physical books or your DVDs or what have you, there is something being lost there. And so you need to be conscious of like the trade-offs, you know, and, 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 and the mistake or the issue, I think, is with these companies, they don't want you necessarily to think about that. They don't want you to think that anything is being lost. They, and so they try to convince you that, oh, yeah, you can just buy now. Oh, yeah, you own this thing. But really, you know, when you get down to it, it's not it's not the same. So it's I think it's fine to embrace streaming. It's fine to to use these platforms, but just be aware of what you're giving up and, 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 and what you're getting in return. Reggie, thank you for making us a little more aware of what we own and what we don't. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Reggie Ugu, writing in The New York Times. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also, as always, find us on Twitter. Please don't talk about cancel culture with us on Twitter. It'll be a trash fire right now. But you can always find us there at The Big Story FPN. You can also email us. If you have any of these digital copies of these particular books and you want to check them and see if the language has changed, that would be amazing. We'd love to hear about it. The email address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can do the same thing, but call us and leave a voicemail. That number is 416-935-5935. The Big Story is fresh every weekday in every podcast player in the world at 4 a.m. You can tell your friends where to get it, and you can ask for it on a smart speaker by saying, play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.